Welcome to the Focus and Chill podcast, where we discuss productivity tactics that work for neurodiverse individuals. Every episode, we interview guests with lived experience of neurodiversity who also have a solid productivity and habit game, and pass the learnings on to you, our wise and benevolent audience. We're your hosts, Jeremy and Joey. I'm Joey, and I coach creatives to get moving on their most ambitious projects through the power of solid habits and strong focus. I'm also a perpetual student of psychology and perpetually on a quest to a one-armed chin-up. And I'm Jeremy. I'm a neurodiverse software developer turned startup founder, building habit and focus software for people with ADHD. My cool party trick is leaving parties early so I get to sleep on time to do my three hour long morning routine. The Focus and Chill podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though. You'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, Focus Bear helps you switch off. Work-related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to focusbear.io. Welcome to episode number 25 of the Focus and Chill podcast. We're thrilled to be joined by Professor Claudia Vickers today, an esteemed expert in metabolic engineering and synthetic biology. With a strong track record in science excellence and securing competitive funding, Claudia focuses on using microbes to provide valuable substances for industries. Professor Vickers has held influential positions in various organizations and even served as the inaugural director for CSIRO's synthetic biology group. Her expertise and leadership continue to drive scientific innovation, making a positive impact on both people and the planet. Welcome to the show, Claudia. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Pleasure to be here. So to start off with, could you tell us about your experience with neurodiversity? When did you realize you weren't neurotypical? What challenges have you faced and what solutions have you used? Yeah, yeah. so I guess um, I come from a fairly uh, diverse family that people recognized early on was a bit different, um, which when we were growing up was kind of wonderful because everybody wanted to hang out at our place because our parents were less strict than other parents, I guess. And I think from fairly early on, I didn't feel like a normal person, felt there was something a little bit different. And then um, I have two children who have been diagnosed with ADHD. And because I'm a research scientist, I sort of went, ah, right, and went off and found out about this thing called ADHD and realised that it was very strongly genetic. And I connected the dots pretty quickly after I was familiar with all the different, I guess, characteristics of an ADHD and went, Oh, that's probably me too. <laughs> so, although I haven't got a formal diagnosis and I'm thinking of going to get a formal diagnosis, I'm fairly confident that with my two ADHD kids, um, I probably have ADHD myself. Yeah, because it's something like 75% heritable. That's right. Yeah, more more for men than for women apparently, but um, okay. looking at our family, I'm probably the one. <laughs> yep. Your partner isn't quite the same. No, he's well. He's he's a lot. For, fortunately, he's the more solid and and steady foil to my um, impulsive ADHD part of the, the partnership. 
So you're, are you the fun parent who's less strict? <laughs> I'm definitely less strict. Yeah, the kids have definitely made it clear that they think I'm less strict. <laughs> so okay. I probably claim to that, yeah. And I imagine there's a lot of positive aspects of having ADHD as well in terms of you're a scientist and a lot of your work probably involves a, a lot of, int- well, not quite intuition, but creative insight. Do you yeah. feel like that's part of it? and maybe the number of projects that you've been involved in? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of um, powerful ADHD traits which, uh, in my case, have been both a superpower and, you know, obviously there's downsides of that as well. So the first one is hyperfocus, very, very strong streak of hyperfocus, which comes out in many different ways. And it's actually something that's almost needed in many ways to get through the you know higher degree education system another one is the ability to juggle multiple threads of thought at one time and from that you are actually able to draw conclusions or identify patterns so pattern recognition is another one as well that other people don't necessarily do and that sounds like intuition and gut feeling, but it's actually just connecting dots and identifying patterns and data sets in information and drawing conclusions and, and, and just seeing things other people don't necessarily see. And creativity comes from that. And also creativity is a really important part of being a research scientist, I think. And, and that ability to recognise patterns and, and identify novel findings and such forth. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of hyperfocus, people often say that it's both a, a strength and a weakness. Do you do you ever have challenges with, like, for example, for me, I, I often burn food because I'm hyperfocusing <laughs> on my work, and then I forget about the cooking that I was doing. Do you have any downsides of hyperfocus? Yeah, all, all of those things. I'm a lot better now than I used to be because I have to be because I've got to balance things with the needs of my kids and my relationship and such forth. But when I can and, and when I could more in the past, you know, I'd just, I'd just be down the rabbit hole for days and days at a time. Less so to the exclusion of food, although I definitely get very hungry before I went, oh, hang on, yeah, I, I do have to feed my body and go do something. But certainly to the exclusion of, you know, work-life balance and exercise and all that sort of stuff. So there's, there's a big downside of it and certainly I was able to indulge being severely, you know, severely hyper-focusing um, at the time when I was doing my PhD. So they're definitely downsides. The downside of being able to hold many threads of thought in your mind at one time is that it's very difficult to do just one thing at a time. So Zooms, for example, are just terrible for me because there's only one thing going on if I'm not the one who's talking then it's really hard to maintain focus and not get distracted. And I've found that fidget toys are really important to keep my fingers busy, just busy enough to, to you know, stop my hand going to the mouse to open the email, something like that, to run along in parallel. Mm, and you mentioned that you've also got a little walking treadmill under the desk as well. Yeah, that's been fantastic, actually, because... That helps with the exercise balance and I can, you know, I can get sort of five or ten kilometres out easily in a day through a couple of meetings while while I'm going on that. That's been revolutionary. And That's I have incredible, I, ten kilometres. Yeah. It's, it's easy when you're just walking at a reasonable, you know, medium pace, so fast enough mm. that you're not out of breath and 
I mean, you're kind of moving around a little bit and people find that a bit weird until they get used <laughs> to it. And I'm a bit hardcore. It's just like, okay, you're going to have to get used to it because this is this works for me. But it's really, yeah, it's, it's actually not hard to go 10 kilometres through a couple of meetings. Yeah, if they're hours on end. Yeah. How about one thing I'm dying to know is my biggest challenge when I was doing my honours in biochemistry was remembering to look after the cell culture that I'd, I'd put E. coli onto a shaker and then I'd forget about it and I ruined multiple experiments. How do you go with lab work? Do you have strategies around being able to actually look after those kind of experiments, which often it seemed to me like they don't necessarily require that much focus, that focus when you're setting them up, but then after that you have to do some waiting? Yeah, timers and alarms. And they're really important for me in all sorts of things because I have that classical time blindness. I'm very poor at estimating how long a given thing will take to complete. So what I do nowadays is just estimate it and then just double that. And usually that's not quite enough or approaching enough, but closer to the mark than the original estimation. But timers on my alarm constantly going off. I remember when I was doing my, when was that? It must have been my honours degree. I was working in transgenic sugarcane. And I remember having like collecting all the timers from around the lab and putting them on <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you had so many going at the time. Then when one went off, you had to go, oh, shit, what was I actually supposed to be doing on that? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, of course, on a smartphone now, which they didn't exist then, it's fantastic because you just write yourself a little note and set a timer. You tell Siri to set a timer and give it a name. So it's really great. Mm, yeah, I really like the experience of using a voice-activated timer. Because for some reason, I could never get into actually one of those lab timers. I saw other people using them, but I'd always forget to actually turn it on. But it seems much more intuitive to say, hey, Siri, or I've got it on my watch and I'll just set the timer that way. Seems oh, to work really well. I, I agree completely. If I had to actually go in and write something down and set a timer, that wouldn't work because I that would take take me away too much from what I was focusing on. But if I just say the thing that's in my head, and I often, actually, I often do a lot of long car drives because I've got, you know, ageing parents in, in cities that are an hour or two away. And I, I think a lot and send myself a lot of emails and a lot of reminders during that time as well. Love it. So let's talk now about the work projects that you're focusing on at the moment. Yeah. So you've caught me at a really interesting time where I'm actually taking a pause for the first time in my working career. And I'm not working formally for anyone I'm doing that pause to think very carefully and deliberately about how I'm going to have impact with my science in the next decade particularly with respect to climate change so carbon sequestration or carbon emissions reduction I think that we're at a bit of a pivot point where it's really necessary for people to to not be distracted by the minute of everyday life and to really think carefully about what we can do to deal with this threat, which is no longer existential. Uh, so it's a really interesting and exciting time in my life. And um, I'm actually very grateful for the opportunity to do that because you don't get to do it very often. So for the last 18 months or so, I've been working in uh, startup companies and it's been really fantastic. And I've learned an enormous amount prior to that. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I was with CSIRO for five years as director of the Synthetic Biology Program, and I've been an academic prior to an overlapping with CSIRO for about sort of 15, 20 years or so. 
Um, and so I've worked in, in academia, government and industry, and I've done a lot of consultancy for industry as well. So fairly you know, broad range of experience and, and expertise. But right now I feel like, you know, as I said, I've got two small kids and I want to do something that makes the world a better place for them in the future. And so I'm, I'm picking out the things that I can work on in synthetic biology that can actually deliver proper impact within a decadal timeframe. Mm, that's a, a critical point there in terms of how fast the impact can happen. Because I guess there's been a lot of promise around being able to make, say, plastic eating microbes and synthetic rubisco that could be a lot more efficient at pulling carbon out of the air. What's your pick on where synthetic biology or the type of work that you're doing could most help with climate change? Yes. So first, it's probably important to explain what is synthetic biology because mm. um, not across that. So synthetic biology is basically using DNA to encode essentially machines, so DNA-encoded machines that do jobs inside the cell. And it's very much like using DNA as a software that you can recode for specific applications. And in my particular case, I use it to recode the metabolism of the cell and channel carbon as it goes into the cell along different metabolic pathways so it comes out as industrially useful compounds that might be fragrances or flavours or food ingredients or industrial polymers or you know, rubbers or plastic replacements, biodegradable products or aviation fuel, a whole host of different things, even pharmaceuticals and things like that. And um, we can make all these different things, and there's a lot of other things you can do with synthetic biology, um, but we can make all these different products and according to techno-economic evaluations, we should be able to make them at substantially lower carbon emissions, lower land use and lower water use than the, the incumbent technologies. Um, so that's exciting for me. However, there aren't a lot of things that can really make an impact at scale. So for something to make an impact at scale, it has to be scalable and large and, and, and significant. And when you look at different products that you make, there's a relationship between the value of a product and the market size of a product and the cost it is to make that product. It's sort of like a three-way scale and that determines whether or not it's economically viable. So you kind of start there. Is it, is it economically viable to do this? And if you push towards the products that are high volume and low value, which is where you need to be in order to get economic impact then there's a there's a sort of a sweet spot where you can get to some reasonable level of impact and it's it's economically viable so biofuel is very very difficult an enormous amount of hype around that enormous amount of hype around synthetic biology as there is with any emerging technology and i kind of feel like we're we're through the massive peak and trough of the gartner hype cycle and we're we're on that sort of slope of enlightenment traveling towards the the plateau of productivity possibly not quite at the plateau yet, but we have a much better understanding of what's possible and what's not possible. And biofuels are an enormous challenge. There are five areas that I think that we can have impact with this kind of technology going forward. Um, most of them are in the emissions reduction space. So agriculture and food, about 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And there are a whole heap of different technologies that are coming online 
um, now and very soon in the future to decrease greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector. Um, the next one is utilisation of greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a company called Lanzatech that I'm really excited by. They use industrial waste gases as a carbon feedstock for gas fermenting microbes. And then they turn that, that carbon into industrially useful compounds. Um, okay. So I think that's exciting. Yeah. Like a, a sewage treatment plant that might be emitting methane? Yes. Yeah. So, yep, methane's a, a fermentable carbon source. Um, and so they use clostridia and they, they take those carbon monoxides and dioxides and methanes and things and they they strip them from the, you know, the off-gas stacks from heavy industry. Uh, and feed those to the microbes in a fermentation reactor. Very um, bespoke and interesting design that they have for their reactors. Uh, and then the microbes convert those gases into um, industrial polymers that you can make fibres and plastics and all sorts of things from. Mm, so I think that's cool. really interesting. That's a New Zealand company that's moved to the US. They're based in Chicago now. Um, there's a company, an Australian company, which is a spin-out from ANU by um, Colin Jackson, and the company is called, darn, I've forgotten the name. It'll come to me. They're doing, um, they, have a, they have an enzymatic, a microbial enzymatic system, microbial, or at least enzymatic system, that breaks down plastic very, very rapidly um, so you can get to an infinite plastic recycling system like you do with glass. I think that's really, really exciting technology. So waste recycling is going to be really important. And the fifth area is in, sorry, the fourth area is in carbon sequestration. So biology already does this very effectively. Um, we need to be able to speed that up. Rubisco, you know, and, and generally in, improving photosynthesis, very, very difficult, enormous amounts of funding and very, very smart people have been trying to work on that unsuccessfully really for a long time. And the problem there, I think, is that, um, well, there's an obvious problem that that O2 oxygen looks just like carbon dioxide and the enzyme, I can't really differentiate between the two. So Rubisco is a carboxygenase oxygenase and people forget the, that it has two functions. And the final area, which is an area that I think is really underdeveloped at the moment, is materials, so bio-based materials, in particular construction materials. So construction is responsible for 20% of greenhouse gas emissions. And if we can start converting to bio-based construction materials, um, then I think that would be really impactful. Okay. So would that be so making better cements that don't require? Yeah. Cement and steel are the big problems. Um, and the challenge there is a regulatory system. So un unsurprisingly, the Constructing material regulatory system is very slow to change um, because you know it takes twenty years to work out whether something's going to be a disaster or not, and it, they just it's just very um, conservative uh, for good reasons. Um, but we need to we really need to convert from using you know, Portland cement or OPC uh, to using more sustainable construction materials. So there's a fair bit of work to be done in that space, and one of the things I'm doing in my my thinking sabbatical at the moment is looking at bio-based alternatives for binders uh, and more broadly for other construction materials. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm glad that people like you are working on it. Yeah, well, it's really exciting. And, and like I said, I've got the time to do this now, the luxury really to do this now, to think really carefully and, and sort of pivot and focus a bit more on more impactful things to do with my science and 
like I said, that's that's an enormous privilege. Cool. And how about when you're not working? What do you enjoy doing in your off time? <laughs> Chasing the dopamine man. <laughs> <laughs> so you're skydiving? No, 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 I'm really bad at getting locked into scrolling on my phone. Um, uh, but when I'm not doing that, then I, I've, I've taken up reading actual paper books again, which I used to do an enormous amount. Um, and I'm being strict with myself and rediscovering the joy that there is in an actual real paper book in your hands. I've just finished Sam Neill's memoirs. Um, and that was really excellent read, highly recommended. Um, I spend a lot of time doing stuff with my kids. So I've now that I've got a bit more time on my hands, I'm I'm helping to coach my son's soccer team and my daughter's touch football team. And that's really fun. The soccer team's particularly amusing and very wholesome. It's like, you know, a, a flock of seagulls chasing a, a potato chip <laughs> running around the field chasing the ball. It's very cute. Uh, and it's a lot of fun, yeah. So with, with that with that stuff going on, you don't sort of have a lot of time for other things. But I do try to exercise. I try to get my 10,000 steps per day. Um, and that's about it, really. Mm. Sounds uh, I sometimes run near a, a soccer pitch with little kids playing and I can, that analogy is very fitting based on what I've seen. It does look like fun for both the parents and the kids. Yeah. Right. So now... In your mornings, how do you start your day? Do you have a consistent routine that you follow or is it a bit more free form? Yeah, I'm not very good. At, well, yeah, no, I'm not very good at routines. Um, and usually it's about just getting, because we've got a neurodivergent household, it's really about getting out the door, um, you know, getting the kids out the door. So we're fortunate that we have a nanny that comes in. She's really lovely. Um, that that helps sort of keep us to time and get the kids organised and the lunch boxes made and the teeth brushed and all those things that need to get done to to manage things on the way out. Um, I'm also an, I'm an adjunct professor at Queensland University of Technology and also at Griffith University. Um, but at, at QUT, I've got a research program there and a team of people, so I get in there a couple of times a week and and work from my office in there um, and just. You know, make sure things are all on track and, and there to support the team. Um, and that's usually sort of Mondays, Tuesdays and Fridays or one of Monday or Tuesday and Fridays. Um, but outside of that, I'll usually, um, you know, we'll get the kids out the door and, and sometimes I'll go in for into the school um, for a school assembly or something like that and then I'll come home and start working. Um, but it's fairly free flow. There's no very rigorous um schedules uh which is obviously bad because time can vanish very quickly when there's not a schedule going on well that that's really interesting that you've got you've got the time three days per week in the university and that must in some ways provide some structure how do you because you've got other things that you're doing as well it sounds like you've got the thinking time and you mentioned that you're potentially doing some consulting as well can you tell us how you you fit that all in in the week yeah well I, I'm actually working on a number of different things at the moment. I'm very careful to keep the um, non-university work separate from the university work so that you know, I can manage a conflict of interest there. But I'm running um, three different activities at the moment. So there's a consulting company, which is called Biobuilt Solutions. And there I'm, I'm doing consulting mostly for startup companies and helping them to you know, operate a number of different areas all the way from synthetic biology, metabolic engineering, biofoundry operations, 
um, through to um, international connections and, and um, you know, policy development and things like that. Uh, and that's that's a lot of fun. It doesn't take up a huge amount of time and I'm trying to keep that as a, as a small business rather than let it sort of get carried away um, because there's other things that I want to do as well. Um, the other company that I'm starting at the moment with some friends, old friends and colleagues is a company that's writing a software package that uses artificial intelligence as a personal writing assistant to write scientific manuscripts. And that is primarily aimed at debottlenecking the process of publishing um, science. So I realised very early in my career that academia is very, very black and white in terms of metrics. It's basically manuscripts out, publications out and grants in. And for both of those things, you need to be able to write. But people aren't taught how to write properly. And most people are really not very good writers. And even though I'm a decent writer myself, I found out very quickly when I started managing students and research groups that um, it's not necessarily easy to teach people how to write properly. So I spent about a decade early on developing didactic techniques, teaching techniques to teach people how to write properly. And I developed that into what I usually run is a couple of days of residential workshop. And I'm converting that now to a software package um, that uses call-outs to um, artificial intelligence softwares to help write the section of um, scientific manuscripts and I think that will be really quite revolutionary and, and impactful in the science community and I'm really excited about that and the other thing I'm doing is a construction company essentially so it's bio-based materials for construction alternatives along the lines of what we talked about earlier and I'm, I'm fairly excited about that and the potential there but I'm focused at the moment on doing some due diligence and feasibility studies and make sure that there's a pathway to economic impact there. They all sound amazing, especially the AI-powered academic writing assistant. I used to be, when I was at uni, I got a job as an academic editor, helping mm -hmm. primarily researchers in Asia to be able to get their work published. And I could see yes. what you were describing around the bottleneck there and, and also just the danger of someone like me with no actual background in some of the research that I was editing. I can see how it's much better potentially if you have AI to do it so that the person can see where meaning has been distorted rather than giving it to yes. someone else. Yeah, and I think that's a huge, huge uh, market. In fact, some of the, the market research we've done has flagged that in Asia and, and China in particular, there's a real need for um, language support in places where there are people who don't have English as a, as a first language. And I think that's going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we might fly through the remaining questions after we take a quick break. So we'll sure. come back after you hear from our sponsor. Hello there, this is Joey. I'm excited to tell you about a project I run where I help imaginative people just like you breathe life into their creative dreams, like writing that book or performing that stand-up comedy set. I know the first step can be daunting. I've been there many times and have helped many people on a similar journey. If you've wondered how to bring those ideas swimming around in your head to life, get in touch. We'll shrink the intimidating dragon off a goal into a cute little lizard of an achievable daily habit that you can do every day to get started and stay moving. Click on the link in the show description to get in touch. Okay, and we're back and we're going to do a bit of a power round of our remaining questions. So firstly ask, how do you optimize your productivity during your 
your working hours. We heard about the walking treadmill. Do you have any yep. other special tactics that you use? Oh, lists. So I'm I'm really big on lists and a list with priorities in them. Unfortunately, the the top priority isn't necessarily the one that I'm wanting to work on. I am a procrastinator and I'll I'll do the things that give me the little dopamine hits because they're quick and easy and challenging first before I, I go for the big stone in the in the cup. Um, but I'm getting I'm actually getting better at that. And and I think it's been incredibly valuable to me actually to do all this research around ADHD and better understand my own little personality traits and, and how I can identify and address those so I'm finding now that I understand better why I operate and how I operate and why I operate that way that I can actually go yep I'm procrastinating um right now what I need to do is seize that big unpleasant thing and use the little things that give me lots of dopamine hits as a reward for the big dopamine hit that I'll get out of achieving the big piece of work that's more challenging and less rewarding or boring or something like that Mm. so I I think it's just so important to be um, introspective enough to understand why you're behaving the way you are, you know, what drives your behavior and, and start to use that as a, as a motivator and as an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's probably one of the things I've heard from a lot of people that there's that advice of eat that frog, but I don't think it necessarily always works for people with ADHD. It sounds like yep. you're describing almost like the momentum method where you choose a few one few little tasks initially to get moving. And then after that, you've got more executive functioning power to, to go and tackle the really nasty tasks. Yes, <laughs> very much so. And we, you spoke a bit then about a habit you'd like to remove from your life in terms of potentially yeah, procrastination and that approach there sounds really powerful. Is there anything else? that maybe one that you've vanquished in the past i think you were saying something around time blindness that you've yeah. kind of gotten a lot better at it yeah i'm a lot better at it um i still wish it wasn't there like i like it, it doesn't seem to be vanquishable the time blindness so i do i do wish it would go um i mean I, I do have mechanisms like um you know blowing out my estimations to try to make it work a little bit better and it helps it does help a lot but still i'm late a lot and so what I do now is I just tell people I've got time blindness. I'm really poor with time management. Um, if I'm late, it's not because I'm disrespecting you. It's just because I've got distracted by something and that's because I probably have ADHD. So when I go into, um, you know, collaborations now and with my my couple of friends who I could probably also tip on as being neurodivergent who are working on the AI program with me at the moment, we just made this agreement. Yeah, we know we all behave like this. We know we've all got our little quirks. We're very direct. Um, we tend to monologue, right? Um, if I'm monologuing, then you go, you just go ahead and do this little snip, snip motion on the Zoom and I've got it. That's cool. I know <laughs> that you're where I am now <laughs> and I don't need to go through the next five minutes of explanation because you guys are all super smart uh, and you're there already. So, you know, th- that helps a lot. I, I think, I think, that the important thing there out of that story um, is communication and managing people's expectations. And that can be that can be easy, especially if you have friends who have are at a similar stage in life and have gone through a lot of similar things, possibly as a result of their own, you know, ways that they interact with the world. Um, 
sometimes people accept it, sometimes they don't. It depends on what their own little hang-ups and quirks are or how mature they are and how they engage with the world as well. But I think that if you sort of go into it and you're just transparent and say, look, here, here are the things that I know are an issue about me. Um, this is the reason. Uh, and it, it's going to be like that. So, you know, be prepared. Um, it might mm. work, it might not work, but it certainly, I found it paves the way for a better relationship anyway. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that. I've had to do that with my colleagues as well because I can sometimes be really brusque and it, it's yeah. not that sometimes really scares people or they feel like I hate them and yeah. it's not about them. And now I've warned people and they don't mind it. It's something yeah. that I try to change, but it comes out sometimes. Yeah. And, and the other thing I find is that I'm, I often, you know, from, from operating with multiple threads running at once, I'll often get to a point in, you know, a few seconds of thought and I'll start talking and there'll be massive logical leaps in what I'm saying because everybody else hasn't been taken on that journey as well. And I've learned now to go, oh, hang on a sec. Sorry. I've jumped ahead. Let me just go back, rewind a bit and talk you through my thought process so that you're on the same page as me. Hmm. And I love that the snip snip thing, because it sounds like some people are able to to make that leap with you and other people, you have to bring them on the journey a little bit more. Yeah. That too. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I found incredibly awesome and just discovered a few years ago is noise-cancelling headphones. They're so good. Um, I also realise I'm a bit, not all the time, but I'm, I'm a bit noise-sensitive, especially when I'm hyper-focusing on something. I can actually block things out very effectively, apart from kids. Kids are very hard to block out. They're very persistent. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but noise-cancelling headphones, when, you, when you're feeling you know, a bit agitated or you know, trying to focus on something or walking through airports, um, which I do quite a lot of, they're just so good. And <laughs> that that feels like a life-changing thing for me as well as the, the treadmill under the desk. They're just fantastic. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, I'm putting them into our list of resources. Final longer question, how do you switch off in the evening? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not as good at that as I would like to be. Um, and I often um, just, I, I need to be tired before I go to sleep. If I go to bed and I'm I'm not tired or brain tired, then, you know, my mind will just, you know, start rolling through whatever it is that I've got to think about. I used to hyperfixate a lot. So stress and anxiety actually for ADHD people comes a lot from um, hyperfixating on particularly social things that might have gone wrong or, you know, something that happened that you weren't comfortable with or something that feels disastrous about work or whatever, um, and that leads you to catastrophize, and that that's mm. actually part of hyperfixation. And that's that's really easy to do, particularly at nighttime. Your brain is a lot more prone to hyperfixation and, and catastrophize, catastrophizing. So it used to be a lot more of a problem for me um, before I understood about how my brain worked and about how I, in particular, respond to you know, issues of issues in the workplace or, or, or things that put me under duress. And it's a lot less of a problem now because I can now identify and go, oh, that's what the brain's doing. You know, hey, brain, calm down. <laughs> um, it's cool. It's actually not that bad. Um, let's pull it apart and go, what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, it's actually not that bad, you know. And so winding down at nighttime for me is, is better if I catch myself on the 
you know, the the melatonin hit that happens if you sleep, if you're going to bed really fairly regularly at night time, then you tend to get tired regularly at night time. Again, I'm not a regular bedtime person, although I do often fall asleep with the kids quite early, like nine nine thirty, um, which is good because then I wake up early and I have a couple of hours of very beautiful time to myself when uh-huh. the world is all still and quiet and is still waking up in the morning. So that's that's quite nice. But yeah, winding down, I I don't have good wind down protocols so i should probably have a look and and see what you've got in your tool list it sounds like what you're doing there is perfect because you're identifying when the catastrophizing happens i I can relate to that that often happens to me as well and i i do preemptive journaling but it sounds like you don't need to do that that you're able to catch it and you you know what your brain is doing and you don't let yourself go down that hyperfixation rabbit hole yeah and and i think Again, that's this. This is like a learning, I think, of um, you know, having been fortunate enough to have two beautiful children with ADHD, with all their trials and tribulations, and you know, learn myself from that process because there's a lot of support you need to give for for, for your kids who have ADHD. Hmm. Yeah, and wonderful that you're looking after yourself as well. I went to a, a conference recently and one of the talks was the best way you can help your children is to identify your own ADHD as a parent. Oh, yes. Like I, I could not agree more. It's really helped me a lot in um, managing my kids' behaviour, in teaching them and working with them and giving me the, the space to give them space for what they need, in advocating for them in social environments and the school. Like it's actually, it's a really, it's a really long journey, and it's a lot of heavy lifting um, working with kids who've who've got ADHD, and of course, it makes it that much harder when you've got your own ADHD and issues to manage as well. Hmm, yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully in the future becoming a parent, <laughs> both the positive and the the challenges. Yeah, absolutely, and I think like you, you'll be really well positioned. I think to to be prepared should you end up with a kid who's uh, who's carrying ADHD as well, or, or or whatever it is. Yeah, pretty likely. Okay, so final two questions: Where can people connect with you? Would LinkedIn be the best place? Or yep, so I'm on LinkedIn, easy to find, um, and I'm on Twitter at Claudia E Vickers. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a website up shortly with Biobuilt Solutions, but probably LinkedIn and Twitter for now. Wonderful. And any final pieces of advice or any asks for the audience? Yeah, life is life is special and wonderful. Don't let that hyper focus mess you up too much. The hyper focus is an, is incredible gift, but also it's that double edged sword. And and just know your own mind. Know how your brain works and how you interact with the world around you the more you can learn about that the easier life will be love it thanks so much for coming on the show claudia you're very welcome it was a pleasure thanks for tuning into this episode of the focus and chill podcast to listen to other episodes jump onto podcast.focusbear.io if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit email us at team at focusbear.io Otherwise, stay focused, stay chilled, and peace out.